Welcome back once again everyone to the second part of our interview with MLA and Alliance Party leader Naomi Long. Naomi, um, in the first part of our interview we discussed a little bit about your background, yeah. what brought you into politics and we just started talking about the assembly and why it didn't work etc. Um, you have been leader of the Alliance Party since 2016 yeah. and you've been MLA for East Belfast from 2003 to 2010 and then again from 2016 um, until present day. You were elected an MP in 2010 until 2015 so you've been a busy lady. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I take it you don't have much time for sitting sitting around. No, I don't. Um, although I, I when I when I do get time, I do like to get to sit around occasionally. Yeah. So when I get the chance to take a break, I try to make as much of it as I can. But um, no, it's it's been a busy time, and but it's been a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, obviously they're all very different roles. Um, with their own challenges. I mean, I've been in the assembly now twice when it's been suspended. I mm -hmm. keep telling people not to blame me that I, I'm not the only reason that it's happened. But every time I get elected to the assembly, it seems to end up in suspension or or whatever. <laughs> and it just it's one of those things. At the four is years, line to tell you yeah, something I know. It? At the four years that when when I was first elected, and it was really frustrating. But it was at the start of my kind of political career, and I hadn't, I suppose. You know, I just cracked on with my constituency work and went to the talks processes and so on. And during that time, kind of learned a lot as, as I was kind of getting on with the job. I was going to ask you, actually, what, was, what would you say is your biggest lesson in that time? Um, what have you learned? Well, ooh, I've learned a lot. Um, I suppose, well, there, I'll say there were three things I'm going to say I learned. First of all, you should never say no to a good opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, I was asked to run for local council in 2001 and I said no and I was persuaded to change my mind. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been elected to the assembly in 2003 mm -hmm. and none of the rest of the things that happened, including being Lord Mayor of Belfast, would, would, would have happened. Right, right. So I think before you say no to something, be absolutely sure that that's a door you want to close because yeah. those opportunities don't necessarily come around if I'd waited a couple of years or whatever things would have been in a very different place right. um and I think sometimes you know don't wait till you're ready because if I'd waited until I felt ready to be a councillor mm -hmm. or an assembly member I would never have got involved in politics I think you've got to you've got to take a chance and learn as you go mm -hmm. Um, and that's I mean that's what I did and I'm really glad I did it I don't regret the, the decisions I made so first thing is I would never say no to a good opportunity if there's one there I think you should take it the other thing I suppose I've learned um, during that time is that if you're going to do if you're going to make a difference you have to know exactly what it is you want to do mm -hmm. and you need to be strong about it mm -hmm. so I mean, I have, during that time, I was only elected a year when I got my first round of death threats. When I was um, a councillor, I... This is Naomi in 2012, I believe. No, the, no? The, this was back in 2000, uh, this was back in 2002. Okay. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced that, that kind of scenario. Um, and that was over who was going to be Lord Mayor in Belfast. And I got the first death threats because we hold the balance of power in Belfast and have since 1997. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
I, I, I received death threats that time. And intermittently during the, that time, different decisions would be made or different choices. And those things would happen. But I remember at that time, I had the option to just back away and say, this is not for me. Mm -hmm. And I was a new counsellor. I was relatively obscure and unknown. And if I decided to walk away, nobody would have remembered me in a year's time. Mm -hmm. So I had the chance to walk away. But I remember when it happened saying, no, I got involved in this because I think Northern Ireland needs to change. And this is evidence that it needs to change. Yeah. And my evidence-based politics, I was like, right, that's my evidence yeah. base. So it needs to change. There's still work to be done. And if it's not going to be me, who's, who's going to do it? Okay. And that's why I stayed. Mm -hmm. And I suppose over the years, I have made decisions, some of which have been popular in the constituency, some of which have been unpopular. Mm -hmm. And some of the unpopular ones led to really difficult and quite dark times. Yeah. But fundamentally, I feel proud of the choices that I've made in politics. When I go to sleep at night, I have a clear conscience mm -hmm. about the choices I've made. Because for me, it's about that, that sense of where I'm trying to get to. Yeah. And I have a very clear vision that I want to see a shared society, that I want to see people treated with respect and with dignity, mm -hmm. that I want to see the diversity in our community celebrated and embraced yeah. and not treated as though it's a threat to anyone. And so each of those decisions in their own way, whether it was who was going to be Lord Mayor, at that time it was Alex Maskey, had there'd never been a Republican Lord Mayor in the city. And there was a debate as to whether or not we would vote for Alex Maskey. And in the end, when we did, I got my first death threats. Um, whether it's that or whether it's how you treat symbols and emblems, the flag being a key one, but not the only one mm -hmm. we've had to take over the years, or whether it's decisions about how you approach things like equal marriage and how you include people um, from different communities and so on. Mm -hmm. All of those can be hugely contentious decisions. All of those will bring their own form of anger and support. Yeah. And I have never made my decisions based on the weight of my post bag. Yeah. I have always made them based on the weight of the argument, mm -hmm. on what I really think is, is driving change. And I keep thinking what the society I, I'm aiming for, what contribution is this making to that? And I suppose the other thing is that if you want to make a change in society, you've got to put that above political risk yeah and that is a lesson that i learned early on um i was told year after year in city hall over a whole host of decisions people shouted across the chamber at me my political career was finished if i was told it once i was told it a hundred times and yet 18 years on i'm still standing just and um i'm still i'm still thriving yeah. and at the end of the day i didn't allow people or I didn't allow either people threatening things, the, the imminent demise, or my own fear of losing my seat or not being re-elected. Mm -hmm. I didn't allow it to shape my decisions. Just keeping with um, the conversation about Because if you do, and, and, I mean, this is a, if you do that, then you're not a change maker. Mm -hmm. If you are, if you're always looking over your shoulder, afraid of losing your seat because mm -hmm. somebody's not going to like what you do, 
you're never going to make any change happen because change people don't like change it doesn't matter if it's good change or bad change mm -hmm. just change is not liked that's right so you're never going to make any change because you're going to be so afraid that you're going to be a captive of the seat yeah. and i've always wondered what would be the point of being elected and too afraid to do anything so from my point of view yeah. it makes no sense mm -hmm. i would rather go I would rather try to make a difference and if I lose my seat and I fail at least I've made a little bit of progress Tried and failed but never or but, not to have tried yeah, at all but if to, to think that I could sit forever in a safe seat mm. and do nothing with it yeah to me would be the biggest waste yeah. of, of time so for me it has to be about maintaining that change and that means having a wee bit of courage and saying if it means and I knew when the flags issue came up and I was I was MP and the way it was orchestrated and everything else I knew that my seat was in jeopardy it didn't affect how we decided to go with the vote because for me and I said it to my colleagues at the time I would rather we do the right thing and I lose my seat as an MP than we do nothing and I keep it. Naomi you're referring to 2012 here I yeah. believe um when you received death threats for voting in favour of restricting the flying of the Union flag yeah. at Belfast City Hall to 17 days throughout the year. Can you tell me your um, how that impacted you as a Naomi Long, but yeah. also how it impacted your family and obviously other Alliance Party members? Um, how it impacted me, it's really hard to say. I was in the middle of the storm and at the eye of the storm everything is still mm. and so the chaos is going on around you but for me there was just this sense of calm which is really hard to explain I mean I have a very strong faith so I I suppose I relied on that um I have a very strong family around me and I relied on that um my close friends and, and family are people that I, I know regardless I, I can lean on and I have a really strong team mm -hmm. um around me in the party so that all helped to, to kind of to, to help me but it's not a pleasant experience um it was it was difficult I worried more I have to say about the people who worked for me about my family and friends being at risk, being near me or with me at things, yeah. that worried me more than Helpless yeah, yeah, that worried me more than than my own personal issues. Um, but it wasn't. It was a very difficult time to, to kind of even start to unpack it all because there was so much going on. I mean, Chris and I went at one stage to make a witness statement and uh, to the police, and they were walking us through all of the. The kind of atta the attacks and threats and you know when we were sitting oh, was that fake pipe bomb now was that before or after the petrol bombs and then when did the call remember the email threat when did the bullet in the post come and they were sitting going why are we talking about this like it's normal in 2012 2013 mm -hmm. which isn't that long ago. no it's not and yet we were sitting there discussing these kind of utterly bizarre things about you know going through the routines that people right across the community we're so used to you checking under your car and all this malarkey again mm -hmm. and it just seemed to me really out of place but I suppose the other thing that happened to me in the middle of it all 
and it sounds kind of silly because this went on for years it didn't just go on for a few months <coughs> the actual protest at the office lasted for about eight months um but the the ongoing impact of it ha has continued i mean as recently as this week somebody has received an official police caution over um, a threat that was made against me on social media i just noticed yesterday and today that um there has been election posters of yeah. the alliance party uh, I've seen it on social media that has been removed and you actually put photographic evidence yeah. of before and after. Before and after. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that kind of stuff happens, but it, it, it really hadn't for a long time. You know, the being burned on, you know, on bonfires and all that kind of stuff, that that has, has been a feature of all of this. But in the middle of it all, um, that had happened around the, the December time. The heat of the protest was really building. Um, but in the May sort of time, April, May, um, I discovered I had skin cancer. And so I suddenly, from having these kind of external threats, was facing a proper threat <laughs> to yeah. my life, like a real one that was all about me. And at that point, it just, everything sort of clicks yeah. into perspective. Of course. And the focus then was my health yeah. and well-being and all the rest of it and i suppose i focus just on getting through every day yeah. and I, you know from from twitter that naturally i am defiant i will not be silenced i believe in and state in my case and so part of what drove me through that time was just the fact that people were trying to shut me down stop me going talk to the community stop me doing my job yeah made me all the more determined to do it but I just had to exercise caution because, you know, it was tough on people. I mean, we had some really hurries and moments in the office where either staff received threats aimed at myself or colleagues. We had, you know, council colleagues of ours, young families attacked in their homes, their windows smashed, their cars smashed. Mm -hmm. You know, we had threats delivered to councillors who were living alone, you know, and got a bullet in the post. There were all sorts of kind of sinister things going on. The, there was only one of our constituency offices during that period that wasn't attacked. Mm -hmm. And that was Karen McCarthy's down in Kirkcalpin. And every other constituency office was either subject. I mean, there was an, there were a couple of arson attacks here and a few kind of hoax, quite elaborate hoax devices. Um. Trevor Lunn had an incendiary device on the shutters of his office, David Ford's office. There was an attack on it. Headquarters was attacked. There's literally every single constituency office, every place we were based was under threat. Yeah. But again, people maybe mistake Alliance being willing to be flexible and seeking consensus as mm -hmm. a weakness. Mm -hmm. I'm not a weak person. Um, by any means I have very strong views and opinions mm -hmm. the fact that I'm willing to work with other people who have equally strong views and opinions isn't a sign of weakness mm -hmm. to me it's an, it's evidence of strength because I know that working alongside people who are different to me doesn't change me mm -hmm. I'm still the same person with the same views and so those who thought that intimidation and threats and so on would, would frighten us away mm -hmm. I think Mr. how determined we were as a group of people and also just how determined I was as a person to continue doing what I, I did and so you know throughout the whole period um throughout surgery and everything else I, I just kept going on um 
with my day-to-day life. Naomi, can I ask, how is your health at the moment? It's good. Um, I mean, I had, uh, I, I'm now, I'm trying to think, I'm now, it must be six years, almost six years clear this May um, of skin cancer, which is, which is good news. I still go routinely for checks. Um, I had surgery also um, about two years ago um, because I had endometriosis, which is a complaint that's actually incredibly common. About one in 10 women have it, okay. but very, very hard to diagnose and very, very painful. So I was suffering from chronic pain yeah. and finally got to the bottom of all that and got it sorted. So I'm in good health at the minute yeah. and feeling kind of quite content with things. But when you face something like cancer, mm-hmm. um, it puts all of the other nonsense in perspective. Nonsense as well. And it, it feels like nonsense when you're suddenly sitting there with that diagnosis. You're thinking, right, okay, yeah. you know, I, I'm not going to go to bed at night worrying about this stuff. I'm going to go to bed at night and rest because my health depends on it. Exactly. And so I suppose that put it in perspective and we did have that strong team um, of people around us. But it was a tough time and mm-hmm. I don't make light of it because... I know that for a lot of the staff who worked with me, mm-hmm. they found it just completely soul destroying yeah. and really tough. And it took them a long time to get back, kind of to get over it. But we also laughed a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think we all have a dark sense of humour in Northern Absolutely. Ireland. And there were times that our dark sense of humour was about all that kept us going. Yeah, yeah. You know, but we important. Yeah, but mm-hmm. we needed to be able to laugh yeah. um, or, you know, it would have been really depressing time. I must say you're definitely um, looking and sounding well. So yeah, that's, no, that's well, good. as I say, we, you know, we, we kind of, we did, we laughed a lot. Um, even at some of the things that initially were a bit horrific. Mm-hmm. We looked back on them and kind of still try and just, you know, have the odd chuckle about it. Yeah. Naomi, you're a Presbyterian yes, and you are on record with having some concerns about the church's decision to exclude those in a same-sex relationship. Could you expand a little on that, if you don't mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I became a Presbyterian and I was, I was born and bred Church of Ireland and that's where I had attended my whole life growing up, but I went to the Presbyterian Church um, just before I got married, that's where Michael had gone. And so we, we went to church together and I was an active member. I took guides and sang in the choir and all the rest of it. And, you know, it was important to me. But over recent years, I have found the approach that the church is taking, um, particularly around issues to do with the LGBT community, mm-hmm. um, quite hostile. Uh, I'm not trying to tell the church what they should think in terms of doctrine because I believe in freedom of religion and belief. So I absolutely accept that the church has a right to its own doctrine and its own practices. So it's not me trying to influence them to agree with my particular views. Mm-hmm. But Presbyterianism has always been about individuals exercising their conscience. Mm-hmm. So reading the Bible praying about it thinking about it talking to others about it and exercising conscience and i think it has now changed from that more open and diverse kind of a a kind of view the one where those who take a minority opinion and i accept that my opinion when it comes to equal marriage is a minority opinion um but are are less welcome. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was typified by a few things. I think the hostility towards the um towards um the moderator of the uh Church of Scotland 
who comes and visits um, the Presbyterian Church here. I think the, the, the hostility towards her because um, the Church of Scotland has accepted um, equal marriage yeah. um, and are accepting actually ministers who are in same-sex uh, marriages. Um, they're not all conducting same-sex marriages, but they, they are permitting people who are in same-sex marriages to continue in, in the life of the church. And it's a different view to the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And that's fair enough. I don't have an issue with them having a difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. But I think things like not sending the the current moderator of the Presbyterian Church to visit um, the, the Scottish Assembly, Presbyterian Assembly and, and so on. And, you know, the moderator from of the General Assembly feeling that she should leave because she wasn't particularly welcome and yeah. so on. I, I just think that as a Christian isn't the right way to engage with people. Mm-hmm. We can have different views. Mm-hmm. We can reach different conclusions. Yeah. But we should be able to respect that we're doing that in faith and we are doing that with the with the right objectives. Mm-hmm. And if we want to influence each other and discuss it, debate it, we should be able to do that without it becoming a schism yeah. where we can't actually engage at all. And I suppose it just makes me sad because this year they were talking about things like baptism um, of children whose parents were in same-sex relationships yeah. and so on. And, you know, where do you stop? Yeah. I mean, the children are not responsible for no. the lives of that their parents lead. That's right. And regardless of your view, mm-hmm. whether you agree with me when it comes to LGBT issues or whether you have a different view, yeah. Whatever your view, the children are not responsible. Right, that's right. And yet, whilst I understand baptism means more than just a, an entrance into the church in Presbyterianism, at the same time, it sent out a really negative message to people from that community about how welcome they would be in the church, how loved they would be, how embraced they would be. And I'm just conscious because so many of my friends, um, you know, through my work and everything else, are part of the LGBT community here, or, you know, I know through other people that they have family and friends who are. And this is something that the churches are not handling well as a rule. And yet those people in our community, because of the way the churches handle it, it can be really difficult for young people growing up in terms of their mental health, their yeah. sense of self and well-being and everything else. If all they hear about themselves on television or in church or in school is negative mm-hmm. um, and, and judgmental. And I just think we have a wider responsibility to make sure that young people who are growing up, who are experiencing same-sex attraction, who are who are confused about about any of this ought not to feel judged ought not to feel afraid yeah ought not to feel excluded <clears throat> or that the place perhaps that has mattered a lot to them in terms of making them feel secure which mm-hmm. is their family and their church mm-hmm. is a place where they're no longer welcome yeah at a time when people are really vulnerable i think the church has to be the place they can go yeah. and where you're accepted yes as you are um, doesn't mean to say people are endorsing or mm. agreeing with you, but you should be accepted as you are 
and be able to find some kind of comfort. I suppose for many, it's what religion should be all well, about. And for me, I mean, you know, people will often challenge me and say, you know, how as a Christian do you square the circle around equal marriage and, and all the rest of it? And for me, it's because I am a Christian, mm -hmm. because I'm called to love God, but I'm also called to love other people the way and to treat them the way I would wish to be treated. Yeah. And I'm married. I've been married for a very long time. And I would hate to think that my most important relationship in my life, that companionship, that love that we have would be denied to me by somebody else who has really no business um, getting involved. Yeah. And I don't want to be in a situation where my friends who are gay or lesbian um, are being denied that same right mm -hmm. to have that most important relationship in their life acknowledged and respected yeah. um, in the way that they should be able to. I think it's for individual churches to decide whether or not they want to be involved um, in marrying gay couples, I don't think it's for the state to force them to do that. I, that to me, that's a step too far. It should be for churches to make that decision for themselves. But I absolutely think when it comes to the state, that the state should be treating all of its people equally. Just on that so that's really important to me, uh, that they can go to City Hall and get married. Not civilly partnered, but married just like any other couple can. Has Southern Ireland now left the North behind in its more liberal outlook? In society? I think it has and I think that that's I mean that's part of the whole I suppose the dynamic and the shift that there's been just even in the last couple of years since the assembly collapsed yeah. you know for a long time Northern Ireland was ahead of the Republic in terms of I guess freedom of religion and that there was a diversity of religion um, that the you know that there was less influence control from church over mm -hmm. state yeah um, at least on the surface yeah and we were more progressive in terms of legislation that has completely turned on its head mm. i think a lot of that is down to disaffection uh, with the church that came around from a series of scandals in yeah. the church yeah. um and i think that that changed the dynamics and the conversations Absolutely. very rapidly yeah. um in, in the south and so we've seen a complete turnaround there but but also a different kind of conversation. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating was, for example, when you look at the abortion debate mm -hmm. in the South, that they had this really structured conversation with the people, with the community. It wasn't politicians necessarily who were always leading the conversation, yeah. um, but they allowed people to inform themselves, to listen to the evidence, to do what politicians do and, you know, rarely other people get the chance to but they got people to be involved in that debate and discussion and it allowed them to reach conclusions mm -hmm. and decisions that were again that were based around the evidence rather than around yeah. ideology back to your evidence. it is and it, it tends to it tends to mm. but i do think we've been left behind we've been left behind by the isle of man we've been left behind by england scotland yeah. and wales i mean the sad thing about all of this is that i was in westminster to vote through the equal marriage legislation in Westminster that meant that people in England and Wales were able to marry and yet I've never had the chance to do that mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland for my own friends and family who would want to, 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 to benefit from it and I would love to see it happen. Like it, yeah. yeah well exactly and I would love to see that happen I mean if it has to happen at Westminster to get it to happen then you, so be it mm -hmm. but I would love it to happen.
I think the notion, at the assembly. The notion in Southern <coughs> politics that home rule was Rome rule is truly Oh, that's dispelled. gone. Like, I think that's gone. Yeah. And I don't think anybody now sees it through that same lens. Yeah. And I think what you have there is, I mean, and it, it varies from place to place, but you're seeing increasingly a more liberal, more open, more tolerant society more secular society mm -hmm. and i mean to me all of those things i'm i'm a great believer in freedom of religion and belief so i want the freedom to be able to practice my religion and my faith um and to be able to hold my beliefs and share them and i want that freedom to extend to people from different faith traditions from different backgrounds different belief systems and for those who have no faith at all yeah. they should be able to be free of religious influence so it's about finding the balance of how we coexist as people some of who some of whom have theistic beliefs some atheistic beliefs and some just non-theist beliefs mm -hmm. people like humanists for mm -hmm. example and so one of the things in our marriage policy was to ensure that humanists could solemnize humanist marriages because mm -hmm. that's another thing that hasn't been able to happen mm -hmm. before yeah. um, and it didn't really reflect well on us as a society because we were excluding people from that opportunity so mm -hmm. that some of those things have been fixed some of them still need to be fixed but I think that we need, again, to look at what kind of a society do we want to live in. I want to live in a society where people are treated fairly and equally um, and where people feel respected and valued in society. And Very good. the only way you can achieve that, I think, is through ensuring that when the law, when they come face to face with the law, mm -hmm. it treats them exactly the same way. Okay. Okay. Um, shared Ireland, um, the name of... Um, our Twitter account is all about embracing each other and um, having an open, honest discussion. And while we won't always agree on everything, it's important that we put these questions out there. So, keeping with the theme of Ireland, after Brexit is done and dusted, Naomi, will the Alliance Party support the call for a border poll when the time is right? Well, I suppose to turn it on when is the time right and I suppose that's the question I always start with and it's not for me to dictate that but I'm allowed to have a view on it sometimes when I say well I don't think it's the right time people go it's not up to you well it's not up to me but I'm entitled to a view and I suppose that's what I'm going to give I don't believe that in the middle of Brexit in the middle of chaos with everything that's been going on with all the uncertainty I don't believe that lobbing the grenade of a United Ireland poll into the middle of all of that chaos will assist us in finding a resolution. But just on that point, nationalists would say that long before Brexit raised its ugly head, this was always a demand or a want or a desire anyway. So Brexit has nothing got to do with this request. I, I think that's slightly disingenuous in that I think if you look back when the assembly was sitting for and functioning, actually the demand, the pressure, um, even amongst those who voted for nationalist parties um, to have a border poll right away had diminished. So when you looked at all of the polling, it was showing that I mean, there was at one point, I think only 20 odd percent of the SDLP voters were saying they would vote for United Ireland tomorrow. Okay. So, you know, and if you looked at Sinn Féin, even their voters, you were talking about around the 50% mark, it would say, if it was tomorrow, we'd make the change now. Yeah. And I think that was because we, we were working through, I think, a good mechanism. The, the strength of Europe in the context of our situation is that it's based on a cooperation and interdependence. And that codependence that we have in terms of our cultural links and everything else 
was allowing people the freedom to fully express their Irish identity and their culture, express their Irish citizenship, to do the same if they were British, to do both in my case, because I, I happen to have both passports. I mm -hmm. think, you know, I and I see myself yeah. as British and Irish. Yeah. Um, I also see myself as Northern Irish, which I know can be controversial, but I think we are distinct and different. And when I talk to some of our neighbours up in Donegal, they would say, yep, we are treated very differently. If you talk to people in Dublin, they sometimes forget we're even here. Exactly. So, you know, there's a, there's a, to me, there's, there's something there that brings us together as a community, shared experience, how we've lived together over the last hundred years and whatever. And so those are all parts of my identity that I'm proud of. I think in terms of Brexit, what Brexit has done is start to pull away the that interdependence, that the, the kind of the linkages that we had. And it started to kind of what we'd been used to was borders being less and less important. So you could drive all over this island from top to bottom, east to west, and you would really not have been that aware there was a border there at all. Yeah. Um, in theory, it was there, um, but in practice, it had no impact on people. Um, in terms of people, it's expression of their identity and their culture and everything else. We were working our way through it. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't. But we were working our way through all that. And I think we were getting to the point where some of the harder issues were starting to, to come up onto the agenda, but they were going to be resolved. Mm -hmm. um, whether that was flags that like we'd already gone through mm -hmm. or whether it was how we use things like language and other things in, mm -hmm. in terms of expressing um, ourselves. I think all of that was, was working well. But when you start to pull away the interdependence bit and you start to kind of pull things apart, that makes it much more difficult, I think, to maintain that sense that you're as British if you're in Northern Ireland or as Irish if you're in Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. as if you were in the mothership mm -hmm. of either side. Mm -hmm. Because suddenly you start to see all these little cracks that open up, the things that you can't do, the, the rights you can't access because you're not resident or there's some mm -hmm. there's the issue of where they're going to do checks. Are you going to have to show your passport to get on a plane to go to London? Mm -hmm. Are you going to have to take a green card with you to drive to Dublin? Yeah. And all this kind of stuff. And that suddenly puts the border right back at the front mm -hmm. of the agenda. And I accept that it's done that. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say is if we're trying to avoid that hard border for economic and social reasons, and I would argue for political reasons, yeah. we focus on trying to do that. I would like to do it by Brexit not happening. That would mm -hmm. be my main objective. If we can't get an agreement that Brexit won't happen, I think probably the best way for that to be done is through a people's vote. So we've argued very strongly for that to happen. And if not through that, then I think we need this kind of special arrangement for Northern Ireland with the customs union and everything else. But obviously the people will, holding a balance of power... And um, London, yep. namely being 10 MPs, won't accept well, that. Well, they're, they're now talking about a softer Brexit being better than any kind of threat to the union. So yeah. let's see where things go. I think, you know, I think people got themselves... What has the past two years been about that? Well, you know, some of it, people just being blowhards when they get the opportunity. And we see too much of that in Northern mm. Ireland politics. Sometimes rationality kicks in. I have always believed that if you analyse... Brexit from a unionist perspective, it was a massive act of self-harm. If you were a unionist in Northern Ireland 
and what you really wanted to do was maintain the union mm -hmm. the last thing you would do would be do anything that differentiates northern ireland from the rest of the island yeah because provided most people weren't affected mm -hmm. by the border mm -hmm. and that differentiation <clears throat> most people wouldn't push for change it's like i said earlier even good change, people can't be bothered with it because mm -hmm. it requires activity and it yeah. may, they have to do stuff. Right. People are passive by nature. They don't want hassle. Right. So if you, even if it's going to be good change, most people will settle for, okay, this is fine. Mm -hmm. But if you start to either remove some of the rights that they might have or they alternatively, the combination of things, they look across and they see, England, Scotland, Wales have got these rights, we don't. Mm -hmm. They look down south, they say they've got the rights too, we don't. Then people are going to become dissatisfied um, in Northern Ireland with how it works. Mm -hmm. If they look and they see Brexit starting to impose new rules, regulations, restrictions on us, they're going to be dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. Now, when people are dissatisfied, change isn't a worry anymore because they're already unhappy. So yeah. they're not going to be worried about change. Unionism, I think, a lot of the time spends its time trying to defend things that actually don't really matter, symbols uh, and, uh, and so on, that don't really strengthen the union and lose sight of the things that do, mm -hmm. which is peace, mm -hmm. the assembly working, you know, and all the rest of it, yeah. function politics. Mm -hmm. That's to me, where Brexit makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Because by going down a course of action that was always going to put British and Irish governments for the first time on opposite sides of the table, for, since 1985, mm -hmm. they've always been on the same side of the table. Yeah. Always working with a common agenda to yeah. try to get the Good Friday Agreement after the Anglo-Irish Agreement and everything else. Then to have them on opposite sides of the table, to have the border question, even if it's if it's only goods and customs and whatever, to just put it even back on the table yeah. has traumatised people. But the other thing that I don't think has been factored into this is that there's a block of people. And I'm in that block of people. And I'm not motivated by border politics. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I have no fear of a united Ireland. Mm -hmm. I have no animosity towards the united kingdom mm -hmm. um i was born in northern ireland i am proud of my british and irish um identity i feel enriched by having both i don't see it as a conflict but people like me in that space also tend to be people who value their european citizenship mm -hmm. They value the liberal ideals and things like equal marriage yeah. and so on play into that. Yeah. And so essentially what has happened over recent years, I mean, if you're a Republican and you've always wanted a united Ireland, you will always want a united Ireland. And if you see the opportunity to press for one, you'll press for one. Mm -hmm. And those people are unlikely to be won over. And say, yeah, no, I'm going to be a unionist because yeah. Jeffrey Donaldson said something or shattering and he's changed my mind. Yeah, there's you a know, 10% of the yeah, other side. Vice versa. Yeah. You, you go to the other side of the spectrum. You're not going to ever get Sammy Wilson going, you know, I had a chat with Martina Anderson and suddenly yeah. I, I, I think a United Ireland's the way forward. It's yeah. not going to happen. No. So convincing those blocks is a waste of time. It is. But there's a group of people in the middle, I would argue much bigger than the Alliance Party vote. Mm -hmm. I would say... 
a lot of people either who don't vote at all because they switch off politics, yeah. plus people who are sitting and voting for the other parties, but perhaps aren't as dogmatic in their views. Mm-hmm. So they might vote for their local Sinn Féin councillor because they do good work, right. or their local DUP councillor because they do good work. Mm-hmm. But they're not as bought into the project. The national question. Yeah. yeah. Those people, those people can be won over. Yeah. But those are not the people who will be won over by increasing jingoism and nationalism yeah. on either side. Mm-hmm. And so this is the problem I have. Brexit is really, to me, I find the whole project quite repellent. Mm-hmm. I, you know, people, I think the idea of being in a community working together across Europe is a really positive thing. It chimes with my politics in Northern Ireland. It chimes with how I would do business anyway. So I like the idea of the European Union. I'm not saying it's a perfect institution by any means. I don't think anybody's saying that. But no institution's perfect. So it's about... It's about making sure that you don't allow those imperfections to become the enemy Mm -hmm. of of what is good about it. And there's a lot good about it. By taking that away or threatening that, it has raised this whole issue for a whole generation of people, for a whole spectrum of people who are suddenly saying the things that matter to me are now under threat. So how do I protect those things? And I don't think unionism has realised the degree to which jingoistic largely anglo-centric expressions of britishness are unappealing not just not appealing but unappealing mm-hmm. to people who are more com- comfortable in their british and irish identities mm-hmm. and are happy if you like with with being both no fear of the united ireland had no particular drive for change at the time but are now asking that question and all of the polls show that the more the more harsh brexit the sharper harder brexit we get the more of those people would favor a united ireland mm-hmm. now i don't think unionism either appreciated it or considered it they because for our politics are always done to one audience and you know unionism in an election talks to unionism. Mm-hmm. Nationalism in an election talks to nationalism. And the only people really who are talking to both are ourselves and maybe the Green Party. Yeah. But they're only ever talking to half the room. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at what appeals to this half of the room. And the loud half of that room are going to be the flag-waving, jingoistic, desperate to get out of Europe people. Mm-hmm. And all the people over here who are kind of quiet, happy enough with the union, but not really pushing that hard, hadn't a lot to say. Mm-hmm. They went with this kind of outlier group mm-hmm. and have ended up alienating a yeah. whole spectrum of people, including people who are unionist, mm-hmm. not people who are undecided or indifferent, but actual unionists yeah. who are now saying, what is, what is in the union now for me? The problem is that the reaction to it at times within republicanism has been tone deaf because for example when the whole debate came up about uh, Mary Lou Macdonald standing with the banner and and all the rest of it and the kind of opprobrium that landed on me because I said I just find it really out of order proved to me that republicanism in that form of Sinn Féin's form of republicanism 
is completely tone deaf, not just to unionism, but to people like me who are just, are not part of the unionist community, but aren't Republicans. Yeah. And the fact that when you raise it and say, this is bad, that their reaction is to defend it and say it's good, rather than to go, have we got the tone wrong here? Is it maybe time to retire mm -hmm. jingoism and slogans and, you know, and so I think what it has done is you've got a lot of people in the middle feeling very uncertain. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't think right now is the time for a border poll. I think the idea that a border poll solves Brexit is a fallacy. I think if Brexit goes ahead, and particularly if a hard Brexit goes ahead, the Irish economy, North and South, will be hit hard, whether there's a border in Ireland or not. Mm -hmm. um, if we smooth the border out a bit, it will be less hard hit. If there's no border, it will be it'll be moderated again but the hit will still be there it will be significant yeah. because it's such a massive economy that we're that, and a massive trading partner um in gb that it will hit us so i think selling it as a solution to that is a mistake i also think bringing in another layer of uncertainty at a time when people want to know where things are going to land isn't the right time and i think when you do it when people are in chaos it feels opportunistic and the number of people you know who have quoted back the kind of jerry adams you know never let never let a crisis pass mm -hmm. by without you know without yeah. seeing the opportunity you know that sense of Sinn Féin being look, just looking for the opportunity i understand that's their agenda but it undermines confidence then mm -hmm. because are they really committed to the assembly or are they yeah. really committed to make Northern Ireland work or is that just a front for something else? That has increased suspicion yeah. perversely but I suppose with the very people who were starting to feel there's a fluidity here. We don't know where we want to end up. So I think the best way to handle this two stages that you let the dust settle on Brexit. Yeah. So we see where Brexit lands because we don't know where it's going to land. Mm -hmm. We see where Brexit lands and we let the dust settle on that. I think the conversation still goes on because I don't think you put that genie back in the bottle again. Yeah. I just don't think that happens. And that conversation is going to continue with or without other people's participation. True. My view generally is you're best to participate in the conversation. But I think people need to be conscious more and more, not just of how their actions and reactions play within their own constituency, mm -hmm. but that they, in a situation of uncertainty, they're being observed by people outside their constituency. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's something our politicians are very good at most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and the, you can't just do a soundbite here and there, you know, oh, we're listening to you, we want you to be included. You know, everybody's welcome in my Northern Ireland. It has to be more than that. And the other thing I think is that we need to go back to the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement said that when it looked like there would be a majority, mm -hmm. there, there should be a border poll called. And that was the context in which the sector state could call a border poll. And I stand by that. I think if it's likely there's going to be a change, that's the time to do it. I think doing it before that and losing it actually would be divisive and destructive for no purpose and would simply turn the whole thing into this kind of headcount. In a recent but interview... one thing I want to yeah. say, because it's important, it also anticipated it happening with the Assembly working. Mm -hmm. The whole of the Good Friday Agreement is predicated on the fact that we would have working institutions, north, south, east, west... Mm -hmm. and the assembly and we don't and so for me i want to see the assembly function i want to see it work i want to see in that context us be able to have the conversations 
that we need to have mm -hmm. about the future um, of these islands. And I still say it in that context, because mm -hmm. regardless of whether there's a United Ireland or a New Ireland or whatever you want to call it or yeah. not, across the Irish Sea, we still have strong historic links for better or for worse. Our economies will still be tied together strongly for many, many, many years to come. Most of us will have family mm -hmm. living in England, Scotland and Wales, and a lot of English, Scottish and Welsh people live here. Mm -hmm. These islands are tied together by their geography, but by their history too. Yeah. So if we're going to have a conversation, I actually think it's a much bigger conversation about how these islands function. And Scotland is part of that conversation mm -hmm. because it's very clear that Scotland is having its own debate about where it goes post-Brexit and how things will work out. Yeah. And I think that that wider conversation is a really important one. Um, and I think we've got to give everybody an opportunity to have a say in it. And that's a, I think that's a challenge right now mm -hmm. when people are so divided and separated and aren't talking about anything. Yeah. In a recent interview, Mike Nesbitt said, Naomi, um, that while he is a unionist, he doesn't advocate for United Ireland. However, like yourself, what you only have to say, he's a supporter of the Good Friday Agreement. So when the time is right, he'll accept the democratic right yeah. of the people. But he, he said it's not up to him as a unionist to argue the case. It's up to nationalists to... Um, make it convince him and all our people and he gave a few examples um, when he draws the curtains when he gets up out of bed in the morning when he looks outside will the post box be green or will it be red when um, the police car calls up to your house will it be the PSNI will it be in Garda Sikana and I suppose that's what we're trying to do we're trying to say like what will an all-Ireland health service look like yeah. the NHS is probably broken the southern equivalent isn't probably great either. People say you have to pay 50 euros to go and see your GP. Mightn't be entirely true, but while, while there is nothing on paper, um, speculation will arise. So I think it's important that we have a conversation, yeah. which we're having yeah. and you're participating in. And as you rightfully say, regardless of Brexit, that that conversation yeah. continues in a constructive manner. Suppose I see it slightly different to Mike in that I'm not waiting for somebody to convince me. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go do my own thinking on this yeah. one. I, I don't think it's for any of us to sit around and just wait for Republicans or Unionists to tell us what we should think and to kind of convince us. What I want to do is, as a, an independent thinker, I want to be part of the conversation. I want to listen to the debate, but I'll also bring something to the table. I have views. Yeah. And, you know, th those things about what colour the post boxes. You know what, what, which which car turns up at your door if you call the police? For me, more fundamentally, if I put my letter in the post box, mm -hmm. will it get where it's meant to go at the right time? Yeah. Is it an efficient service? Yeah. Does it work? You know, if I call for a police car and that police car comes to my door, what level of service am I getting? Mm -hmm. How good are they at mm -hmm. making sure my neighbourhood is safe mm -hmm. and at making sure that the people around me um are safe? And I think that. It's less to me, and I suppose this is just a personal issue, but it's less to me about those symbolic things, and it's much more to me about how does our society work best? Yeah. How does it function best? And my problem at the moment with the whole talk about a united Ireland is I don't see how you can unite 
this island when one part of this island is so bitterly divided mm-hmm. and I know other people will say the other way around well how do you unite this bitterly divided part while you have a border around it mm-hmm. um, but I think genuinely there is through our shared pain and loss through the troubles and everything else there is something fundamentally broken in Northern Ireland in terms of our relationships, not with the South and with East West, with each other. Mm-hmm. And so for me, tackling that sectarianism, segregation, that brokenness in our society is more important right now. That... And it's not an either or, I get that, but I am more concerned about getting that those relationships right mm-hmm. because I think when those relationships are right, people will have the confidence and this the sense of safety and security to start having the more difficult conversations. If you start the conversation with the most difficult and divisive one, you will find that people feel either threatened by it or feel that they're excluded from it in some way and that I don't think is good in terms of people's levels of confidence that's not to say the debate doesn't happen it does but I think how we also tackle sectarianism division and society here really really matters if people are serious mm-hmm. about wanting to see unity of some kind you've got to start with uniting people not just territory moving the border won't fix northern ireland's problems any more than it would fix brexit but getting the people of northern ireland to have a sense of unity of purpose and shared values and vision being able to have good relationships north south east west all of that makes unity in the truest sense possible in a way that just stripping away a border won't do. If integrated schooling became the normal practice here, would that be a help? I think it would be a massive help. And I think it would be a massive help for two reasons. First of all, I think that it is it is the default that we should be aiming for, where we our kids go to school together, they grow up together, regardless of their religion, regardless um, of their, their beliefs and whatever, and they are educated together. Um, and they learn to live together by living together because it's something you can only learn by practice but the other thing is that schools play a particular role in that communities grow around schools mm-hmm. so we have really I mean our schools are segregated but our housing is even more segregated I mean I, I opened you know the Irish news yesterday the you know nationalist houses being built it's, I, what is a nationalist house? I I, you, I uh, yeah, you know, and I understand the shorthand, and I know the point that was being made. But more greener grass outside. Yeah, it? but it's just that <laughs> madness that we accept that terminology. We we don't we assume that when a houses are being built in a particular area, you know, um, that and it, that they're going to end up being owned by a particular community and it becomes territorial Mm -hmm. and that's what i'm saying we need to break this territorial stuff down Mm -hmm. and start looking at relationships between individuals and that's me coming back to being a liberal again Mm -hmm. i have no issue with people having shared identity i have an issue when people are using it as a club to exclude other people but i mean i'll give you another example i was up in Derry not that long ago and we were having a look at you know an area where the zoned for massive housing development 
So there are no people there now. There are fields. There's going to be all this new housing built. And the neighbouring community on one side is by and large Catholic and nationalist. Mm -hmm. And the neighbouring community on the other side is by and large Catholic and nationalist. But these are thousands of houses. We're not talking about 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. Thousands of houses. And when it came to planning the schooling, because they're going to be schools, shops, everything else. Yeah. They had planned it out as a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And our guys said, why is it a Catholic school? Why would you not put an integrated school in there? Mm-hmm. Well, because it's in a nationalist area and they're going, but it's in a field. <laughs> like, it, it's not a nationalist, it's a field. You know, if you put a Catholic primary school in that estate, you are immediately saying, this is going to be an estate. You put a label on yeah, it. You, yeah, you're saying this is an estate where the most convenient, it'll be most convenient for Catholics to live there and inconvenient for Protestants to live mm-hmm. there. So Protestants who want to live there can still technically live there, but they're going to have to drive their kids across the city to go to school Protestant, somewhere else. Yeah. Now, if you put an integrated school at the heart of a new community, you're saying to people, you're saying that a very strong anybody message. who yeah. wants, you're welcome. And I think that when you get to that, and the sad thing is that there is a small integrated school not that far away that could easily grow into that space yeah. if they were given the chance. And so we were challenging back to say, look, the default should be go for integration. When we build new housing, it should just be housing. Yeah. People should be allocated off the housing waiting list. It shouldn't matter what colour they are. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't matter what race they are. It shouldn't matter what religion they are. Mm-hmm. They should be allocated on the basis of need. And those houses should remain neutral in the sense that it's just housing accommodation. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be seen as a nationalist community or a loyalist community. Because as soon as you do that, you also empower people in those communities with malign intent mm-hmm. to spot the difference and to drive the difference away. And the next thing a flag is hung from yeah. Of whatever denomination from yeah. a lamppost and that's it. And or somebody gets the tap on the door to tell them it's time they moved on because yeah. they don't fit yeah. the community. Mm-hmm. And we I mean they're in the housing executive there is this there is this rule you can it says that you have the right to choose to live in a single identity area and I, that needs to go mm-hmm. because the practical outworking of that is then you get to pick who else can live in your yeah, street. But maybe is a reason why they have that um guideline there is because we have to unfortunately live in the real world still we do but you're never going to change it mm. you have to think about how you, how can you implement that the only way you can implement that is by giving that person control over who lives in every other house in the street mm-hmm. it's the only way that person every person should have the right to live with dignity mm-hmm. in their own home yeah. and in peace and quiet and safety with their neighbours but nobody should have the right to dictate who their neighbours are. Because yeah. once you give that power to one group of people, mm-hmm. you're immediately demeaning somebody else. You're saying that anybody different, anybody who comes from a different background, anybody who's gay, anybody who stands out from the crowd because of the colour of their skin or whatever it might be, yeah. those people, it's it's a matter of choice whether you let them into your club or not. Yeah. And that shouldn't be how it is. It's not how it is if you go out to buy a house. You go out to buy a house, you don't get to pick and choose who your neighbours are. Sometimes you'd like to, but you don't get to do that. And it shouldn't be the norm in social housing either because if we had schools, if we had integrated education at the heart of it, then communities will build around schools. So parents who want Mm -hmm. their children to go to that school will live near the school. Mm -hmm. Suddenly then you build up integrated housing, but it's not 
people having to opt into a development and then it'd be protected. It's people genuinely going to yeah. live there, debate the school. They get to know each other at the school gate and relationships build and friendships build and it becomes a vibrant community. It doesn't diminish the fact that there'll still be people there who are unionist, who are nationalist, Protestant, Catholic, Hindu, Muslim, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. But it does mean that they see themselves at some level as part yeah. of another community, yeah. the school community, yeah. that brings them all together. And that's that's how we start to change things. Because if we accept the way it is at the minute, where kids go to different schools, and it's not that I'm blaming schools, by the way, because that wouldn't be fair, because all of those of us, well, the majority of those of us, certainly my vintage and above in Alliance, all went to segregated schools, uh-huh. whichever way you look at it, yeah. and still came out of it wanting to, to bring about integration. So it's not that schools yeah. train people to be no, segregated and, and divisive. The, the issue really to me is that for as long as we send kids to different schools and they go home and they play in different streets and their lives are separate, we leave open the opportunity for people to create mistrust, or fear, or worse than that, mm-hmm. um, about people who are different. That's right. And once people know each other, you know, it changes things. Once you know who your neighbours are, it changes things. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, they don't have horns. They're not out to get you. Yeah. They're not getting up, you know, first thing every day with an agenda mm-hmm. that's about ruining your life. They're just ordinary people like you going to work, trying to pay the bills, getting their kids through school, yeah. going out on a Friday night with their friends. That's that's what most they people all have are. To, they all get yeah, sick. exactly. And but you're only gonna really believe that yeah. if you know people and you and it happens in work and it happens at university, but yeah. it doesn't happen enough early enough. Yeah. Um and I just would love to see the opportunity given, you know, for people to be able to share those experiences growing up because you know, we, we laugh about it. I mean, we, I love watching Dairy Girls. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And we laugh about all those things when they yeah. had the, you know, the EMU project and they were writing up on the board the differences between Protestants and Catholics. And, you know, Protestants don't like ABBA and I go, well, that is a lie because I love ABBA. But, you know, we, we, we laugh about all that. But there's something, there's a truth in it mm. that we have weird ideas mm. about each other. Yeah, really well, weird no ideas. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and things that we don't know about each other because we've grown up separately. Yeah. And if you're, if you're, never if you're, let the truth yeah, get in the way. But if you're curious and you're you're building a friendship and so on, those things don't matter. No. You you get over those. But if somebody comes along and tells you those people do such and such, did you know? Yeah. You you're susceptible to being misled yeah. and to having those seeds planted, and that's where I think just getting people together early and mm-hmm. building communities. I'm passionate about the integration thing. Would the Alliance support a call for an All-Ireland Forum to discuss unity? I can't see any reason why that discussion shouldn't take place. I mean, we're having, at the minute, we attended the All-Ireland, we attended the All-Ireland discussions around commemorations, for example, when it came to the decade of centenaries that we're going through at the moment. We participated in the All-Ireland Forum um, around Brexit. So I don't have an issue with, having those discussions on an all-island basis mm-hmm. it's how you get unionism to engage in those discussions that i think is is a test because mm-hmm. they didn't engage in those all-island discussions on previous issues even like brexit yeah. where i think genuinely their voices 
I sometimes wish they would go and hear how much their voices, if they could be a fly on the wall and hear how much their voices are missed. Because when you go to those all island things, people genuinely want to hear unionist perspectives. Mm -hmm. They want to understand. There's a genuine desire to understand where unionism is coming from. And, you know, it would be good, I think, for unionism to participate in those things. Not necessarily with a view to supporting a united Ireland or to trying to take that forward, but to set out their reasons why they're not in favour of it. Mm -hmm. But to do it in a way that people can then relate to, understand, respect we don't have those conversations in that way and so i can't see any harm in having the conversation but as i say i think for me the key in terms of making the decisions around this Mm -hmm. we have learned a lot from brexit you do not go into the position of sending people off to the polling booth with a ballot paper until you have Mm -hmm. a detailed proposition that they can scrutinize and debate and discuss Mm -hmm. until people know the terms of what they're getting involved in what it would look like how it would work and i think brexit has taught the uk a lesson about how to do referendums because it's not part of the constitutional norm yeah you look at the referendum in the south and whatever your views about the outcome of the one on um abortion for example you know, people knew what the legislation looked like before they went in to cast their vote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the parliamentarians, the TDs went and, and did their job, drafted their legislation, told people what would and wouldn't happen. So although there were those who were trying to scaremonger or whatever, you couldn't really because somebody would go, well, no, there's the legislation. It says this or it does that. So there was a substance to it. Whereas with Brexit and out, well, people could say whatever they wanted and everything could be dismissed as project fear Mm -hmm. or everything could be, you know, just completely exaggerated on the high grade it was going to be when we left side. And there was no, there was nothing we could point to to say, this is what it will be. It's one of the reasons why I really want a people's vote now, because I think now we have May's deal. Mm-hmm. So we know that the German car makers aren't going to rush to our rescue. Mm-hmm. We know that Europe isn't going to roll over and give us the easiest deal that's ever been done in the history of deal making. We know that people like David Davis hadn't a clue what they were talking about at the time. Mm-hmm. We know that people like Jacob Rees-Mogg changed their tune mm-hmm. more often than most people changed their underwear. Mm-hmm. We know all those things now. We know that they originally wanted to have a confirmatory referendum on the bill. So I'm saying... We know all that. We I'm also not even know. Not speaking about the dark money that was thrown well, at advertising. Well, exactly. I mean, I respect the people who voted leave. I don't mm-hmm. respect the campaign, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and I don't think I, 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 I have no respect for the campaign because I think the campaign was utterly corrupted democracy mm-hmm. in the way it was handled. Mm-hmm. But I think by giving people a vote now, they can look at Theresa May's deal. They can look at the evidence around what a no deal will look like, and what businesses said, and what farmers have said, and what communities have said, and they can look at the deal that we have now. And they can make a decision which is an informed choice. And I suppose that has to be one of the benefits of having the past two years because at least everything You have the debate and discussion. Yeah. And I think if you don't have that debate and discussion, if you well, don't it, explore it first... Yeah. So we've done it wrong. We don't you don't do it the other way around. It. Well, it's exactly what happened. I mean, everything has been done the wrong way around. Yeah. Cart before horse here yeah. because... Or cart before, as I said, cart before donkey because I think that <laughs> Theresa May's deal is a donkey when everybody was holding out for a unicorn. Yeah, yeah. But th- there is a real issue around the, the, the way it's been done. Even take the confirmation, the indicative votes that they had. The indicative votes that they had in Parliament, if Theresa May had been serious about getting a Brexit that was about uniting the country behind something, mm-hmm. um, she would have given those indicative votes two and a half years ago. That would yeah. have been her first stage 
let's vote on a series of options Norway plus Canada plus whatever it's going to be put them down see what see where the land lies and she would have known very quickly that no deal people didn't like no deal people didn't like this they didn't like that she could have narrowed it down and said okay people want a soft Brexit so a softish Brexit maybe a customs union with access to the single market maybe not the single market maybe with a little bit of special treatment in Northern Ireland, but not too much that it gets too far. She would have had some scope and then she could have gone and negotiated a deal yeah. from a position of strength. Yeah. Knowing whatever she brought back to Parliament was roughly in the guidance that they set. Instead, she drew red lines that were incompatible with themselves, internally yeah, incoherent. Themselves, yeah. yeah, and then went off to, to Brussels to try and negotiate a deal. Brings it back. Had no clue what Parliament would think of it. And they just rubbished it immediately because the people who don't want Brexit think her deal is a stinker of a deal mm -hmm. because it's Brexit yeah. and the people who do want Brexit think her deal is a stinker of a deal because it's nowhere near what they promise people because mm -hmm. that doesn't exist yeah. so you know I think if we've learned anything about referendums it is get the detail tied down first mm -hmm. have the discussion in advance be really clear mm -hmm. about what it is that people are being offered and then let the people make their choice and respect it because I genuinely think if we had done this the other way around and had all that debate and now we had a vote, mm -hmm. I don't think either Leave or Remain would still be complaining about the result. Yeah. And the problem is that everyone feels that the debate only started after exactly the vote had been right. taken yeah. and that's not the right way around to do it. That's and right. for that, I actually commend those who are in favour of Irish unity for trying to start the debate before there's any discussion of actually calling a vote because yeah. otherwise you do it the wrong way yeah. round and you but, don't but have I, an informed I, decision i think coming from um, my point of view is that the day and hour that the result of a border poll happens 50 plus one has to be the benchmark on either side however i want an 80 20. yeah so what it's, you just didn't win it and you're dragging people with you. You're winning it because people have listened to what we're speaking about. It's a really interesting point. In the Good Friday Agreement, it's 50 plus 1%. Yeah. And that's always what it's been accepted yeah. to be. And unionism has always said, for as long as it's 50 plus 1%, we stay in the union. Yeah. And so that's the, that's where we're at. Yeah. If you were to ask me on Brexit, on a United Ireland or any major constitutional change, do I think 50 plus 1% is the right threshold? Mm -hmm. I don't think it is. I think... I think it makes sense for big constitutional change to have an overwhelming majority. So I think you need to be around 60% to say there's no, we're not talking here about a slim, you know, 1% here, 1% there. That ship is sealed. That's not where we're at. But I think what you're saying is quite right, that if there is ever to be that vote taken, you don't want it to be taken in the context where it's disputable in terms of, what we usually hear if votes come down to the wire you know oh well there was personation or there was there was some vote rigging or whatever it might have been or some of the claims that were made weren't accurate or whatever so you want to make sure that whatever it is that it's absolutely clear and you want to make sure that the majority is sufficient yeah. that you actually feel you have not just a, not just got those who are and have always been in favor of united ireland but that you have managed to reach people to persuade, yeah. and persuade yeah. people who previously didn't see and themselves the in that mould mm -hmm. um, and that they have been convinced by it. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that you need to convince even those who will never vote for it mm -hmm. to not be afraid of it. Yeah, correct. Because I think, and, and I think that unionism 
needs to do work now if it really wants people to remain in the union. I would love somebody from a unionist perspective to tell me the benefits from their point of view of staying within the yeah. union. You know, I need to hear that as yeah. well. Yeah, and, and I think, but I think that that's where the debate can take place. But I think also unionism needs to reassure people who aren't naturally unionist. So again, people who are centrists and so on who who haven't taken a firm position on this. But also people, I think, who are nationalists that, you know, if there isn't unity in the immediate term or whenever, that that there's nothing to fear from that in terms of their rights, in terms of their their ability to do all the things they've been able to do. Yeah. There, there's a piece of work to be done in uh -huh. terms of reassurance, I think, uh -huh. in terms of both traditions, uh -huh. being able to reassure people. Because at the end of the day, and this is where I keep coming back to being about relationships, it doesn't matter whether there is a united ireland or whether we're part of the united kingdom neither of those things really matter for as long as our relationships are this fractured mm -hmm. we need to deal with those relationships and when we deal with those relationships many of those other things then will flow from that but i think if we don't deal with the broken relationships in northern ireland if we don't find a way of not just tolerating each other which to me is a really low bar but actually seeing our society as enriched by diversity, mm -hmm. then I think we're missing out. When I look at Dublin and places like that now, and it has major challenges in terms of the kind of rich and poor divide that you see in many big mm -hmm. cities, and you can see it in Dublin really starkly. Yeah. And so it's not without its challenges. In it. But I see a diversity there in Dublin something that's vibrant and exciting when i go to london i see the same thing i see a diverse city that's vibrant it's growing you know there are lots of different people and it's not a negative or a weakness it's a positive people like living in a city that's full of difference yeah, you can shop of... on a sunday or a but, yeah, but it's that <laughs> whole thing of there's something for everybody yeah and it adds value yeah and i don't think quite yet we see the added value of of the diversity we have here and some of it's because we don't have enough diversity because like we just got two blocks people are always trying to carve it up but some of it is that we're a wee bit afraid of people who are different from us because difference has always been a reason for suspicion and i think we need to break that culture of suspicion mm -hmm. of difference down and try to find ways of actually celebrating the fact that do you know what we are different, we have different views and different perspectives and it's partly what makes us who we are and makes us interesting. We, we touched already on the integrated schooling on trying to bring people together as yeah. we move forward. Part of the problem that I see it is we love this tradition of marching around the street here on all sides by the way, I'm not just going down one route but like, is that something that we should resign to our past as we try to move forward because I don't really see it helping to bring communities together. If anything, it nearly... I'm not a marcher myself, um, so I'm not somebody who, it's not really my bag to be mm. honest. I grew up though with a father who was in the Orange Order um, and you know the band used to leave from our house in the 12th when he was master of his lodge and all that kind of stuff. So it's not alien to me in the sense that I'm, I'm, a lot of my family were involved, the apprentice boys, they were involved with the black, they were involved with the orange and so on. So I understand that kind of marching tradition and I think it's it's easy to become jaundiced about it. I think particularly um, in parts of Belfast where there's been a lot of conflict around it and you've these kind of flashpoints and interfaces where people who, you know, 
are, are un who are genuinely uncomfortable with the whole concept of people marching on the street given their the views of the spouse and everything else and the people who want to march there because they always have you know are in direct conflict it's not like that everywhere so i'm not a fan of marching but i think that the liberty to be able to do it even though i don't like it mm -hmm. is an important civil liberty yeah so for me marching and the parading and i suppose commemorations of other kinds and so on there are important civil liberties there that i wouldn't want to see diminished mm -hmm. for people to be able to express their politics their culture their traditions is really important mm -hmm. and that people don't feel that they can't do that mm -hmm. i think if you get to a point where people feel constrained in that and they're not allowed to do it i think that's you've, you've lost you've lost the run of things and you're no longer a liberal society doesn't mean everybody needs to like it but we should be able to accept it so i don't generally go to watch the bands in east belfast when, when they parade but i don't complain about them parading past the end of my road mm -hmm because it's once or twice maybe three times a year it's a minor inconvenience in my case i'm not speaking for everybody but the shops at the end of my road it's a minor inconvenience and provided they conduct themselves in a respectful way mm -hmm. so that includes stuff like not littering the street when they're there not urinating in people's gardens not playing particularly provocative music mm -hmm. going past the local chapel at the end of our road yeah. and so on and so forth putting up a lot of flags and then leaving them there for months and months and months at a time yeah. if people respect the diversity of the community i live in i'm willing to respect their right mm -hmm. to be part of it and to parade and to exercise their civil liberties because mm -hmm. that's i think that matters where this breaks down is where the respect goes where people behave in a provocative way, where their conduct on parade falls way short of what it should be. And if you're walking through a neighborhood where you no longer live, mm -hmm. you're a guest. Mm -hmm. And when you're a guest, you should conduct yourself sensitively and with respect. Not because you're a guest in the sense that you haven't as much right to be on the road as anybody else, because that's back into territorial claim. Mm -hmm. But when you're passing by your neighbor's property, when you're passing through your neighbor's locality, you should be respectful of the fact that, that they have different views. And so I think there needs to be give and take. Um, and I think that sometimes that's been lacking at times on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the provocative behaviour that we've seen from some of the marches has not helped. And it's one of the reasons why we were really keen on the parades issue, for example to look at ways we could have a proper code of conduct um, that people would sign up legally to say how they would conduct themselves on parade and if they didn't, what the penalties for that would be and so on. Because I think that in the main, people are willing to say, okay, it's not my bag. I don't like it. But provided it's not in my face 24-7, I can live with it. But if you're going to deliberately attack, insult, offend the things that are valuable and matter to me as you're passing by, then I'm going to object to you ever being there. Mm -hmm. So if you get the balance right, both from protest and parade, 
that people are respectful in how they conduct things. And we've seen that happen in some places recently. I think that's a much better way forward because the right to protest is also an important right. You know, I would love to see a day when people didn't feel the need either to parade or protest past each other. But we're not there. And I would be content if people could do their parading and their protesting in a dignified and respectful way. Um, Because to me, if you start to say you can't march, if you start to say you can't protest at a march, if you start to say those things, you're stripping away civil liberties and human rights that actually really matter. And I think that's a dangerous road to go down. But it is about respect. And it's about saying, how do we do this in a way that recognises that many of the people whose homes we're passing, you know, whose, you know, whose local neighbourhood we're walking through, aren't really into the same things we are. How do we do that? You know, and one of the ways that people have done it, you know, is things like sometimes they've played hymn tunes, they've avoided trying to play some of the kind of more party tune stuff, or they have maybe only had the drum beat there to get through local neighbourhoods and so on. And some have taken the initiative. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know examples where Orange Lodges have spoken to the local Catholic church and, you know, have made sure that if there was a funeral or if there was a service or anything going on, that they wouldn't be there at the same time and that they wouldn't cause any kind of issues. I think in different communities, you it's, can build up relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, which brings right back to everything I've said, it's mm. about relationships. Yeah. Once people know each other and see each other as part, not of a different community, but the same community, then it's in everybody's interests to fix it because you're not destroying their community you're destroying your own community and so it's that sense of ownership i don't i don't like the idea when people talk about the you know the catholic ardoin shops and the nationalist ardoin shops i understand the point they're making that the majority of people living in that neighborhood now are of a nationalist view and, and that's fine but i don't like the idea that the shops and that area should be seen as solely for nationalists mm-hmm. Because that's not actually good for that community in the long term. You want people from all different backgrounds to be able to go there, shop there, work there, use the facilities that are there and share that space. It's not that nationalists have no influence or or involvement in shaping it, but it shouldn't be one that's about shaping it to the exclusion of other people. And I don't think that's what communities want. So I think it's about how you find ways to allow those parades and other things to happen that don't create that sense that it has to be one or the other. And I see in my own constituency here, you know, real dereliction at times. And I know that some of it is because people drive along the bottom of the Newton Arch Road and they see paramilitary murals on walls, they see flags on lampposts and they think, I'm not stopping here. I'm not just talking about people from a nationalist background, I'm just talking about people mm-hmm. who see that as pretty frightening. Mm-hmm. And just think, no, not for me. And you can only and drive on. Yeah. And drive on. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that doesn't hurt them. They go on. True, it hurts them. But the local community mm. lose services because yeah. the shops close and the weather on the vine and there's less opportunities. Whereas if, not saying people give up being loyalists and unionists, of course they're not going to do that. That's who they are. But if they express it in ways that are more welcoming, mm-hmm. If they express it in ways that are less hostile, mm-hmm. then you will find that more and more people will feel comfortable in that neighbourhood. They will come there, they will shop, they will spend their money, they will work in that area, they will bring jobs to the area, and that will benefit that community. And it's this thing again about 
trying to create a sense of community that's not just about what suits me, but actually is about trying to maximize the size and the breadth of that community because that's when it really starts to get interesting. Yeah. And we have seen some fantastic work in East Belfast. You know, again, down on the Newton Arts Road, things like C.S. Lewis Square and the mm-hmm. Craig of Glen um, and the Greenway, the Craig of Green, or the Conswater Greenway, we've seen it with the Cumber Greenway, where you have these massive areas interconnected by paths. Suddenly people have an opportunity to go everywhere from Craiga right along all these paths, right down to Titanic yeah. and everything else. And it's reconnecting parts of the city that were mm-hmm. broken. You, the glider, people, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of negativity about the glider. But <laughs> yeah. I was in here last week doing an interview with a couple of girls um, from St. Genevieve's High School in West Belfast. Stepped on the glider on the Falls Road, got off the glider on the Newton Arts Road to come and see me. Mm-hmm. Back on the glider, back again. Mm-hmm. That couldn't have happened without major changes of buses and all sorts. But for them, it was a straight one-stop journey and it was perfect. And I want the city to be more like that. And I want Northern Ireland to be more like that, Mm -hmm. where people feel free to move around, feel free to be able to express who they are, but conscious that we're we're in a diverse community and we should be respectful of other people's views that might be completely different. Okay, Naomi, um, time is against us. (laughs) But with local elections just around the corner, why should I vote Alliance? Well, I would say I'll give you a couple of reasons. I think the first one is that I think that we have seen over the last two, two and a half years um, that voting for the main parties is not delivering. I think people are understandably frustrated that there's no assembly, that there's no delivery, that we're not getting we're not getting to deal with health and education and all those other things because we're caught in this paralysis of Brexit and the border. And that paralysis is affecting everything in government and nothing else is getting done. And so I think if people want to see better than that, if they want to see delivery, if they want to see us back around the table in Stormont, then I think the Voting Alliance, first of all, increases our influence um, as a party in terms of our percentage influence. It needs to be taken account of. But I think also it increases the opportunities we have in local government to re-engage parties around those specific kinds of issues about how we build better communities. I also think that there's an opportunity, um, I mean our key issues are things like we're talking about demand a better value for money, a better openness and transparency and accountability. We're talking about better communities that actually work sustainably and protect our environment. We're talking also um, about how we can better support local businesses so that we can create economic growth, not just in cities like Belfast, but just right across Northern Ireland in small towns and villages so that we can create opportunities for people. Because, you know, I think unless people feel the benefit of the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement in tangible ways with work and employment and jobs and opportunities, then they're not going to feel that it's really benefiting them at all. And so I think if people want to see that, then they need to look at our manifesto, which we're going to be publishing, because it sets out how we would set about doing those things. It's practical. It's about local government. Local government generally works well. I believe it can work better, and I think we have good plans for that. But I do think that ultimately <coughs> it is about an opportunity um, to give the bigger parties a bit of a kick where it hurts. Mm-hmm. in the ballots and that's what my advice to people is get out there and cast your vote and let them see that they can't take your vote for granted because for as long as parties believe that they can just pile the votes up and it doesn't matter what they do after the election 
that's what they'll keep doing. Yeah. Once they know that they're going to be held to account for lack of delivery, then delivery will come. Tell me this very quickly. Will the Alliance ever become an all-iron party? I would never say never to any question, but I don't, I, I honestly no don't. No plans for it in the immediate? No, 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 no plans for it in the immediate you're, term. You're not going to um, merge with Fine Gael or Fine Oh, uh, no, no mergers, no mergers. But I have to say, as always, and as we always have done throughout our history, we'll continue to maintain good, strong working relationships with all of the parties in the South, all of the parties in GB. Uh, we'll continue to do that and we will try where we can to bring our influence to bear. But no no mergers, no mergers. I think people, maybe I'm being cynical, but I think people always look to mergers when they're in trouble. I think it's I think it's a bit of a life raft thing where people feel, I remember you, Comf and the Ulster Unionists thought things were going really badly and they thought the Tories would throw them you know, throw them a life raft and kind of drag them out of their difficulties and that didn't work and I think maybe there's a little bit of that going on with the SDLP at the minute where they're a little bit a little bit cut adrift mm -hmm. um, having lost their Westminster position and all of those things and I guess maybe they see an opportunity with Fianna Fáil to kind of reimagine re where they're going. I don't know if it's going to work for them or not to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, but from our point of view, we're really confident um, about the message that we have and the principles that we're standing for. And we're happy to work with parties in Northern Ireland, but also in the South and in England, Scotland and Wales to try and deliver on the agenda that we have. I interviewed Colin, the SDLP leader last week, so my next mission is to get both of you <laughs> in the same room together. Naomi, we always like to finish off with a little lighthearted um, question. Okay. If you could be anyone, either alive or dead, just for one day, who would it be? But more importantly, why? There you go, Matt. Oh, who would I be? Listen, kept you quiet. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm not, I don't really, I'm not a, I'm not a kind of fan girl type person. Yeah. Um, But I would love just for one day to be a fly on the wall in the White House right now. Oh my God. I would just love to know what it's That's actually. That's what Colin Mason said yeah, as well. Just to, like, just to know exactly what it's like at the eye of the storm. Mm -hmm. Like you see the craziness on White the, on the tweets. You know, I just, no, behind the scenes, you know, maybe special advisors, no, no, not special advisor. Do you want to take any responsibility for him? You can end up just a, a full, like a full day of just seeing mm -hmm. what's going on yeah. inside that head, I think that would be fascinating um, because I find him utterly incomprehensible as a human being. That's a unique time in history. It, it absolutely is. It's, a, it's, a, it's like we've kind of, I was saying to somebody yesterday, I, I sort of wish that we could all wake up tomorrow morning and it would be like the kind of Dallas years where Bobby Ewing stepped out of the shower, <laughs> he hadn't been shot. There was a major reset and we all kind of yeah. wake up tomorrow morning it's like trump in the white house don't be yeah. ridiculous yeah, yeah. what do you mean brexit what's brexit <laughs> that's the kind of i, I want to that's what i want i'm now getting nostalgic for like when it wasn't this crazy right, and that right. was only a couple of years ago the one thing you could say is politics has always been interesting so yeah. we can't knock that but right. i would like trump to be a little less interesting and a little more sane i would feel a lot happier if, if we could just achieve that i think we all agree on that <laughs> naomi eventually to finish one more answer please Potatoes, rice or pasta? Rice. Water or alcohol? Did I miss it? <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> okay. Northern potato or southern potato? Northern. Favourite food? 
Pizza. Favorite film? Mm, Wizard of Oz. And I've kept the most difficult question to last. The best political party in Ireland? Alliance Party. And on that note, Naomi <laughs> Long, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. And I wish you nothing, only success moving forward. Thank you very much. Thank you.